Today's podcast is brought to you by HydroJug. They make hydration easy. Well, actually, Stacey, their tagline is hydration made easy. Okay. Okay. I know we're joking, but seriously, I mentioned before how I got Matt one of these for work and how it reduced his caffeine cravings and helped his energy to not be dehydrated. But recently, he was using his backup, another brand, and it broke. Guess which one is still going strong? I'm going to guess the Hydro Jug because the carry loop and integrated handle means it's accessible to carry with wherever you go. Indeed. And I love how durable it is. You don't have to only be super active with them. I like to leave one on my desk to make sure I'm getting my daily water intake. It means less time on refills. And with the wide mouth, you can add things like supplements, ice, or fruit to the BPA-free jug. Water science fact. 75% of Americans are chronically dehydrated. Water is crucial to your health. Every cell and tissue inside your body requires water to function. And as we've talked about on the show before, hydration is even important for the gut microbiome. And not just any amount of water, but about a gallon a day could make a really huge impact on your overall health. And HydroJug holds half a gallon of water. And to recap, it has a wide mouth opening. Actually, I got their straw inserts. I love those. Me too. And it has an integrated handle with an optional carrying loop. It's dishwasher safe and shatterproof. And the sleeve has a great pocket for things like cell phone and keys too. It's fantastic for hikes or camping that way. Plus, by choosing HydroJug, you are becoming part of the movement to stop the waste since every day, roughly 60 million plastic water bottles are thrown away. HydroJug is offering you 10% off with code WHOLEVIEW. Head to thehydrojug.com to customize your jug and use code WHOLEVIEW for 10% off your purchase. That's thehydrojug.com slash discount slash WHOLEVIEW. All the feels on this one. Because that's what the science says. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. Let's talk about what this looks like in real life. Facts do not have opinions. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Science is true whether or not you believe in it. Self-love is really about self-respect and Welcome back, listeners. This is The Whole View, episode 477. You are going to be shocked. Sit down. You're going to hear about vegetables today. (laughs) But not just any vegetables. We're going to talk about my favorite family, group, class, genus of vegetables, the cruciferous vegetables. I will say, other than nightshades, this is the group of vegetables that we get the most questions on because there's so many myths and rumors about cruciferous vegetables. Like, really? Where is this coming from? Who who has it out against cabbage? It's uh, people who want an excuse to not eat Brussels sprouts. Spreading lies. Well, they obviously have never had roasted Brussels sprouts That's because, it. honestly, I'd prefer that over popcorn. So... I was listening to, this is a complete tangent, a really fascinating, I think it was like an NPR uh, like bit on Brussels sprouts. And apparently they have been selectively bred over the last few decades to be less bitter. So one of the reasons why we all like Brussels sprouts now and hated them as kids is because they're actually like tastier than they used to be. 
Well, also because people were boiling them and serving yes. them from cans. So that didn't Mom, help either. I love you, but boiled Brussels sprouts are gross. She knows. She knows. <laughs> okay. I Let's dive into this question because I'm actually jazzed to jump into this topic. Anything you ever wanted to know about cruciferous vegetables you're going to learn today? I've already looked at the notes. I don't know how Sarah can come up with eight pages of notes <laughs> on a vegetable group, but we're going to do it. And if you don't even know what cruciferous vegetables are, we're going to tell you. We also have a lot of shows on vegetables. If you're new here, um, we're big fans. They're 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 good for you. We're going to talk about that. But you can look back at some of our older vegetable shows. Um, basically, anything vegetable whole view is a good Google search. But episodes 152, 286, 335, 373, we talked about all about vegetables and then how many vegetables, part 234. And then episodes 304 and 424 were other popular vegetable shows where we talked about cooking vegetables or eating them raw, which I know we're going to touch on today. And then also when Sarah gave us the absolute bomb that we need to have 30 vegetables or fruits in a week. And I had a little bit of a panic attack and then I counted up my vegetables and I was hitting the mark. And as a reminder, I have a meal plan every Monday on my blog where I make sure that we're getting you 30 fruits and vegetables, a variety of them every single week, including cruciferous vegetables, which honestly happen to be one of my favorites simply because they're so affordable and versatile. I completely agree. They're probably uh, served for dinner every single night of the week in this house, or just about anyways. Um, But let's read Janet's question and kind of dive into it, because I can't tell you how excited when I saw this question come through. I was like, yes, an opportunity to nerd out about this wonderful family of vegetables. So Janet wrote, hello, Stacy and Dr. Sarah. I'm a brand new listener, and I am so glad I found your podcast. I find myself laughing as much as I am learning, so thank you. I wanted to know your take on cruciferous vegetables. I have heard they should only be eaten rarely and never raw or juiced. Is there any truth to that, and why would that be the case? Apologies if you have already covered this on a past show. Thank you both for sharing your own struggles with us openly. I feel like I just gained two new friends, and my Fridays just got even better. Thanks, Janet. My face looks like that emoji that wants to give people hugs with like hearts going around in a circle. I'm like, oh, Janet, you're so nice. Good job, because that's how your questions get read of the show. <laughs> <laughs> kidding. I'm mostly kidding. Um, I do want to just, there is one truth to what Janet says, which is don't don't juice your vegetables. We have also covered that in a show where we talked about juicing. I definitely encourage you to go back and listen to that. Sarah is going to talk a lot about gut health. And in order for that to apply, you need fiber. So I'm just going to, that's, that's my non-scientist answer to Janet's question. And then Sarah, you can tackle all the rest. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. So check that one off the box. Um, Let's start with taking a big step backwards, because I think a lot of people don't even know what the word cruciferous means and what family of vegetables this refers to. So it's typically referred to as the cabbage family. Um, There are any 
um, vegetables that are members of the brassica genus or the brassicaceae family. And so they're they're called cruciferous because that comes from the Latin crucifere, which means cross-bearing, and it refers to the shape of the flowers of these plants. Um, but it basically includes everything related to cabbage. So actually, fun fact, uh, cabbage, savoy cabbage, napa cabbage, cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, collard greens, kohlrabi, gailan, and kale are all different cultivars of a single species. They're all the same species of plant, which is Brassica oleraceae. Additional cruciferous vegetables uh, are generally cultivars of Brassica rapa, which means they're all also another species. That includes turnips, bok choy, and rapini. And then there's also things like horseradish, watercress, gardencress, radish, daikon, collard greens, rutabaga, and mustard greens. They're all either called cruciferous vegetables or also brassicas because that's the genus. So those are all interchangeable names for the same family of vegetables. I literally, I could be done because I've learned something new today already. Um, <laughs> maybe we should just run down for the layman <laughs> what the uh, handy dandy list might be of cruciferous veggies. Do you want to, do you want to try to do a thing that we're terrible at and just like speed Speed through this, alternate. I'll say when you say one. Oh, that sounds fun. Okay. Or terrible, but let's try it anyways. <laughs> Scary, exhilarating, all the things. <laughs> Arugula. Bok choy. Broccoli. Broccoli rab. Brocco flower. Broccoli romanesco. Brussels sprouts. Cabbage. Canola? Also yeah. known as rapeseed, really? Uh-huh. Yeah. But don't, don't, We're terrible don't get at the this. oil. We're terrible at this. I know, it's true. We're already commenting. Okay, back on track. Cauliflower. Chinese broccoli. Collard greens. Daikon. Field pepperweed. Flowering cabbage. Garden cress. Horseradish. Kale. Kohlrabi. Komatsuna. <laughs> <laughs> I say. You're so never, confident. Having never eaten this vegetable before, but um, I feel like I it's just challenged favorite. myself to find it. It it's totally is. Yep. Land cress. Maca. Mizuna. Mustard. Radishes. Rapini. Rutabaga. Tatsoi. Turnips. Wasabi. Watercress. And wild broccoli. As you can see, this is, there's, there's a lot, some of which none of us have ever had <laughs> some of which <laughs> we love i mean some of these are my favorite favorite vegetables i uh am in the middle of trying to b establish a new kitchen garden in my backyard it's been a huge project it's currently about uh, a two foot deep hole that's full of water because of how much rain we've gotten but i have actually planted kale and tatsoi seeds to try to grow through the late fall because i'm I'm going to try to grow something now. If I'm lucky with the weather, I'll actually get some get some cool stuff to eat. All right. So now we know what cruciferous vegetables are. I think in order to get to Janet's question, um, maybe we could talk a little bit about shattering that that myth. I'm just going to put it out there right now. We're going to shatter the myth. I'm not going to try to like tease you along. Just FYI. We both like them. Um, so we're a little bit biased. But it does come from a science background. So Sarah. Tell us about why we love cruciferous vegetables. They are probably one of the best studied 
vegetables. And it, in part, it's because the health benefits signal from them is so strong. So when studies look at you know diet trends and whether or not those correlate with positive health outcomes, there's always this really strong signal from cruciferous vegetables. So that, of course, means that scientists want to investigate that further. And so they go and do more studies looking at how different families of fruits and vegetables and how cruciferous vegetables in particular can improve health. And so because of that, there's there's these huge systematic reviews and meta-analyses. Our listeners know that is my favorite kind of scientific study because it pools data from a bunch of other studies and then actually starts to, to hone in on magnitude of effect. So there was a systematic review looking at 95 studies evaluating fruit and vegetable intake and showed that eating about one serving of cruciferous vegetables per day, so about 100 grams, led to an average of an 18% decrease in ischemic stroke, a 17% decrease in hemorrhagic stroke, a 16% decrease in total cancer risk, and a 12% decrease in all-cause mortality and cardiovascular disease, independent of total fruit and vegetable intake, which is the really important part here. It means that um, as much as it's beneficial, and we've talked on the show uh, approximately 6 million times about the importance of eating a diet abundant in fruits and vegetables, making sure that at least one of those is a serving of cruciferous vegetables can improve our health above and beyond the fact that it's just a vegetable. That's incredible. Like literally my eyes got, did like the thing where they got really big as you were talking about that. And I love that it's independent from... 30 fruits and vegetables a week, which might have people scared the way I was, but definitely go back and listen to that show. Cause we put you, we put your mind at ease. But, um, so I guess, are there human trials on, you know, actually seeing these or. Yeah. So there have been a bunch of different clinical trials where they have, um, looked at either people's habitual intake, like the where that data that I just talked about came from, there's more different studies where they've looked at even um, even higher levels of intake. So there was a um, study out of China where they compared the people who ate the most cruciferous vegetables. So they ate uh, an average of 200 grams for men and 166 grams per day for women compared to the lowest intake, which was 28 grams for women and 34 grams for, for men and showed that comparing the people who ate the most to the people who ate the least, there was a 31% reduced risk for cardiovascular disease mortality and a 22% risk of all-cause mortality. So again, like eating even more seems to have even more benefits. Um, and there's also been um, studies where they have given people basically a high cruciferous diet for a certain amount of time. So there was really interesting one in 2014 where they had people eat their their formula was 0 7 or 14 milligrams of cruciferous vegetables per kilogram body weight per day it basically worked out to like 4 to 8 servings uh for 2 weeks and they showed reduced markers of inflammation. The biggest change was in the inflammatory cytokine interleukin-6, which is really fascinating because interleukin-6 plays a pathological role in chronic inflammation and autoimmunity. So that's a lot of cruciferous vegetables to be eating. Um, but at the same time, that was a 
big change seen over just two weeks of, you know, using cruciferous vegetables as an intervention. And then there's been a, a ton of like Wait, perspective. Wait, can I ask a question? Sorry. Yeah, of course. Did you say that was per day or per week? Per week. Per day. So they were eating four to eight servings of cruciferous vegetables per day. It's a lot. But I'm, I'm just calling this out because I think one of the myths that I often hear, and I know we'll get into this, has to do with autoimmunity. And so I want to like put a highlight, like a spotlight on the fact that four to eight servings a day saw a 20% reduction in an inflammatory marker that plays a significant role in autoimmunity. So we have science to support seeing this happen because I know some of the things we're going to talk about are going to be like, well, so-and-so says. Um, we try to always come back to the science and like, okay, I know that the, like logically someone might, you know, be postulating, but we're trying to, we're trying to look at the science here. And that's a pretty significant one for me to, you know what I mean? Does that make Am I going in circles here? Uh, you are, you are not. I'm really glad that you highlighted that. Um, but I also want to highlight the, the reduced cancer risk because, uh, cruciferous vegetables, what makes them so special is that they have a very unique collection of organosulfur compounds called glucosinolates, and we can't get those in other foods, right? Onions have a, a different family of organosulfur compounds um, that also have a bunch of anti-cancer benefits, but they're additive, right? So because they're a different family of compounds, it, it's we can't get the same thing from onions. We can just get something kind of similar. Um, so it'd be like saying we can get B vitamins from different foods, but it mean, it, it makes a difference if it's vitamin B6 or vitamin B12, right? Like it's, it's still the same family of vitamins, but each vitamin has different effects. So because of that, cruciferous vegetables, that is the reason why cruciferous vegetables have benefits above and beyond just being vegetables. They also have all of the other things that vegetables have. What makes the glucosinolates from the cabbage family so special is that they have really strong anti-cancer properties. And this is seen in vitro. So it's seen in you know cell culture models, right? Seen in the Petri dish but also seen in studies in humans, which you asked about, Stacey, where they follow people for a very long period of time. They see what they eat as a baseline and follow and see their cancer risk. And the looking just at high versus low consumption, so we're talking about, again, sort of one to two servings per day versus you know not often having a cruciferous vegetable, uh, it's associated with a 20% reduced bladder cancer risk. 15% reduced breast cancer risk, 18% reduced colorectal cancer risk, 21% reduced endometrial cancer risk, 19% reduced gastric cancer risk, 27% reduced liver cancer risk, 25% reduced lung cancer risk, 11% reduced ovarian cancer risk, 21% reduced pancreatic cancer risk, and 10% reduced prostate cancer risk. Those numbers are huge. And just one to two servings a day. Yeah. And just to clarify, when we say things like one to two a day, it doesn't, it doesn't mean like you have to track your food and journal it like on a calendar. It just means, you know, if you're having on average seven to 10 servings a week, that's going to kind of balance out and have the same effect, right? It's not like people need to be like, oh, I didn't get my kale today. Um, yeah. 
Correct. Okay. Yes. I'm like, now <laughs> there was a long pause. I was like, maybe was, I'm wrong. I was <laughs> nodding away emphatically, forgetting again that this is an audio medium and none of our listeners can hear me nodding. You'd think after this many years you would know that, but that's okay. Oh. We forgive you. <laughs> um. So I guess the other component of this is, and part of why perhaps also, right? Like, what is it in these vegetables that in particular has such health benefits? And one of the answers to that has got to be nutrients, right? Like mm-hmm. cabbage, kale, okay, it's kale is such a cliche. Let's run with that one, right? But also like, you know, you think about parents trying to force feed broccoli to their children and like all these things. And it's it's got to be because there is nutrient benefit to these lovely cruciferous vegetables. Yeah. So it's not just all like one class of phytonutrients. Cruciferous vegetables are the most nutrient dense vegetables. They actually have the highest average nutrivore score of any fruits and vegetables or any animal foods that I have calculated. So I explained the nutrivore score recently on the podcast It is a nutrient profiling method that I started developing actually almost a year ago, nope, a little bit over a year ago, um, to help basically quantify the nutrient density of foods. Um, And so this is a great time to mention that uh, you can actually go to Nutrivore.com now and see my coming soon uh, page. And... Um, you can sign up there to get my Nutrivore score guide to food groups there, where you can see how cruciferous vegetables compare to all of the other different, very granular food groups, looking at fruit and vegetable families individually, right? Separating out nuts from seeds, that kind of super detail. So uh, that's there. And also my new article on thepaleomom.com this week is about the Nutrivore score. So you can go there and read more about how that's calculated. But basically, this family of vegetables is crazy nutrient dense. It's not just glucose and oleates, although those are amazing, but it's basically a great source of most essential vitamins and minerals as well, uh, as well as things like polyphenols and fiber. And so um, actually, watercress is the highest nutrivore score food that I have calculated so far uh, at 9,481. Um and uh, and all of these are actually really good. Kale is at 4,162, broccoli at 3,647, collard greens at 6,329, bok choy at 4,729. Even the root uh, like members of this family, like rutabaga, is still 1,959. So to put that into context, those numbers are similar to organ meat, which we talked about uh, not that long ago. Uh, slash much higher than even the highest liver. Um, all of the top, all of all of the cruciferous vegetables make it into the top 100 Nutrivore score, like food list. Like every single one is in that list. Um, they're just they're just crazy nutrient dense. And if we look at sort of on average what this family has to offer us, they're a good source of fiber uh, of vitamin B9 folate. They're an excellent source of biotin, vitamin B7, of polyphenols, of vitamin C. They have, on average, 100% of the daily value of vitamin K. Um, They have, on average, 50% of the daily value of vitamin C. 
they're they're really impressive. And of course, glucosinolates uh, studies show that about 15 milligrams daily is what is um, associated with all of these beneficial impacts. And so, a single serving, a one cup serving of cruciferous vegetables, on average, has 120 percent of that 15 milligrams. Um, two cups for leafy greens, I should mention. So that that's also, I think it's helpful to sort of think about that serving, that that one cup serving of cruciferous vegetables has an average of only 27 calories. So also when we're thinking about how a food contributes to the diet, we think about um, the nutrients per calorie. So if that food is only Right, 27 calories is 1.35% of a 2,000 calorie a day diet. So any nutrient that off that in that 27 calories is more than 1.35% of the daily value, it actually is really good. It means that those calories are providing us a, a great amount of nutrients, right? So if you had less than that 1.35%, then you would say it's, that's a really underwhelming so when we look at that as a level, now we see that cruciferous vegetables also provide an impressive amount of calcium, iron, magnesium, phosphorus, zinc, copper, manganese, selenium, vitamin B1, vitamin B2, vitamin B3, vitamin B5, vitamin A, carotenoids, vitamin E, alpha-linolenic acid, and even protein. Um, even protein, these vegetables offer an average of 6% of the daily value for that one cup serving that averages 27 calories. So there's there's actually very few nutrients that cruciferous vegetables aren't a good source of, and there tend to be those nutrients that are exclusive to animal foods like vitamin B12, vitamin D, functional fats, uh, functional amino acids, and peptides. Um, it's not a great source of choline. Um, but generally, right, it's, it's an awesome source of a bunch of nutrients and a really good source still of just about everything else. And I love the idea that, for example, kale, two cups of leafy greens sounds like a lot. But if you cook kale, that's like three bites. Yes. <laughs> it cooks down so much. Um, and arugula is just one of those things. And now I'll have to keep an eye out for watercress now that I know how wonderful it is. Um, it's just one of those things that you can add a handful to of another salad that you might be eating. Except Sarah, who just like raw, uh, gnawing on raw romaine uh but if you make yourself a <laughs> bowl of salad um putting in like a handful of arugula is great and I know Sarah's not a big fan but I love smoothies and it's interesting my body will crave kale like usually I just use spinach because it's an easy um thing that like the blender does better with and so I get baby spinach but sometimes my body will be like nope it's time for kale um and I do think that my, me personally, the more that I focus on this Nutrivore mindset, right, of like really nourishing my body with the nutrients that it needs to thrive, the more that my body will tell me what it needs. It's not to say that that's a substitute for a medical professional or testing and supplementing and whatever it is you might need. But I know for me, if I, I my body will tell me if I listen. So um, I'm wondering, I know I'll eat for example, kale raw in a smoothie, but it's also kind of like pre-digesting it for me in a smoothie. And I'll eat coleslaw with raw cabbage, but then I'm putting like lemon juice or an acid on it that's also kind of, you know, partially digesting it. When I think about how I eat these things raw, it's almost always 
like in a form that is supporting digestion before it gets into my body, if that makes sense. Um, so one of the questions that Janet asked was, can cruciferous vegetables be eaten? Especially don't eat them raw is, you know, the myth that goes around. And maybe my body is telling me not to do that, but I'm wondering what the science is saying on whether or not to eat it raw. Yeah, I think there's actually potentially an even better argument for eating them raw versus cooked. Um, not that cooked is bad, and we'll, we'll talk about that, but um, the glucosinolates in cruciferous vegetables, which are the phytonutrients we already talked about that have the super anti-cancer properties, but also, you know, antioxidants, anti-inflammatory, they're, they're pretty amazing. Um, they, it's not actually the, the parent molecule that is present in cruciferous vegetables that's beneficial. It is a metabolite, so a, a broken down version of that molecule that's beneficial for us. And the thing that breaks it down is an enzyme called myrosinase that is also in that plant. Um, so what happens is when, you're, when your broccoli is growing, the myrosinase and the glucosinolates are in different parts of the cell. And when you damage the plant, you crush it, you chew it, you, you know, slice it. Um, those parts can meet, and then those glucosinolates get metabolized into other beneficial compounds, uh, especially thiocyanates and isothiocyanates. Um, and what's really important to know about that is that the enzyme, myrosinase, is not heat-stable. So you only get that chemical reaction that produces the, the really good stuff when you're basically chewing them raw or you're blending them in a smoothie um, or you're somehow like crushing them before you you consume them. It, in the plant, it's actually, it creates more of a bitter flavor. So it's actually um, used by the plant as a defense mechanism to get, you know, bugs not to eat it, for example, because um, it makes it more bitter. But that bitterness is actually part of the sort of distinctive flavor of this family of vegetables. So it's not that when you're eating on raw broccoli compared to cooked, there it is a little bit more bitter. If you're if you had both side by side and were really paying attention, you would notice. But it's not a huge effect. Um, but some of the most beneficial isothiocyanates that are produced this way, for example, the most famous one is called sulforaphane, um, and it has like the most amazing properties. So it has all those amazing anti-cancer properties. It also helps to support phase two detoxification enzymes. So it helps the liver detoxify toxins. Um, it can also help protect healthy cells from damage from environmental carcinogens. It upregulates a ton of our body's own antioxidant enzymes like glutathione, like my favorite hemoxygenase one, which I studied for my PhD, um, but a whole pile of them. It uh, has been shown to improve glycemic control in patients with type 2 diabetes. Um, it has been shown to improve uh, liver health. It is an anti-inflammatory. It has been shown to delay progression of osteoarthritis. It's been shown to be cardioprotective. It's been shown to potentially have neurodegenerative properties, even including in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and multiple sclerosis. And it has antimicrobial activity against pathogens like H. pylori. Um, it's actually been associated with reduced gastric ulcers and gastrointestinal cancers. So 
you, we maximize the benefits of things like sulforaphane and other isothiocyanates when we consume these raw. But I did promise that it is okay to eat them cooked. Um, and that is true too. So what we talked about in episode 424 was that it's beneficial to eat vegetables both raw and cooked. Yes, cooking loses some um, nutrients. For example, the metabolites of glucosinolates and cruciferous vegetables, um, but it also forms others. And what we talked about on that show is that raw and cooked fiber feed different probiotic species in the gut microbiome. So we have benefit to both. It is okay to eat cruciferous vegetables cooked if you prefer roasted Brussels sprouts compared to a you know shaved Brussels slaw, which is delicious. I, if you haven't tried it, I definitely recommend trying it. But it's okay if you prefer them cooked because studies have shown that we have bacteria in our gut microbiomes that also can make the myrosinase enzyme. So they can also do this important work of producing the actual glucosinolate metabolites that improve our health. And studies show that when we consume cruciferous vegetables regularly, uh, our gut microbiome will have more species that can actually do that work for us. So there was a, a study in humans where they um, basically gave them a, a diet. Um, again, it was sort of like four to eight servings of cruciferous vegetables a day because it was based on body weight. And it was mainly cauliflower, cabbage, broccoli, and radish sprouts that they were eating. Um, and they, what was really interesting about the study is they showed that the change in the people's gut microbiomes was individual. So everyone kind of had a, had a different change. There were certain things that happened to everybody. There was, for example, uh, an increase in allostipes um, bacteria, which are associated with a um, bunch of different health benefits, um, especially mental health and liver health, particularly. Um, there was an increase in eubacterium, which are really important short-chain fatty acid producers. Um, so there was some changes that they could say happened in everybody, but most of what they could say was the the shift was individual, and it seemed to be related to the baseline microbiota composition. But what was happening was the bacteria that were growing were the ones that had myrosinase enzymes. So they had the same metabolic functions. So the, basically, everyone's gut microbiomes were adjusting to this increase in cruciferous vegetable intake so that they could benefit more from the, the glucosinolates in cruciferous vegetables. So that is very cool. Today's podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox, yet another brand we have been using and loving for years. It's such a pinch me moment. I agree. I love that we're able to offer such a great deal for you listeners, ground beef for life. If you haven't heard of ButcherBox before, they're a certified B Corp that delivers humane and sustainably raised meat right to your door in 100% recyclable boxes. It's all super simple on their site with a variety of boxes to choose from, including a custom box, which is what we do. ButcherBox has been essential for our family these last few years. Almost all of the meat and seafood we eat comes from ButcherBox. We were able to adjust the delivery frequency, both up and down as needed, and always with free shipping. I love that ButcherBox focuses on reducing their carbon footprint too. Speaking of green, see what I did there? <laughs> 
Yes. We're talking a lot about vegetables this episode, but one must also have protein, ideally quality protein with heart-healthy fats from being in the pasture and getting sunlight. Oh gosh, yes. There are nutrients exclusive to plant foods and other nutrients that are exclusive to animal foods, and we need both to thrive. And high-quality meat like ButcherBox has even higher levels of important nutrients. For example, the conjugated linoleic acid content of grass-fed beef is up to 500% higher than grain-fed. And it has more omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin A, vitamin E, B vitamins, calcium, magnesium, and potassium. And one of the things I love about ButcherBox is that they're focused on quality, both for you, the animal, and the planet. You can be assured the protein is grass-fed, finished, free-range, organic, humanely raised, and wild-caught. This is your chance to never have to shop for ground beef again. That's right, ButcherBox is giving new members free ground beef for life. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash wholeview and get two pounds of grass-fed ground beef free in every order for the life of your membership. Log on to butcherbox.com slash wholeview to claim this deal. I think you've laid out a lot of things. The question I want to dive into, the myth, the legend, I guess it's not a legend, but it was fun to say, um, is about goitrogens. And I think a lot of people hear cruciferous vegetables are goitrogens, therefore do not eat them, especially if you have autoimmune, especially if you have thyroid, so many times from so many places. So can you tell us what are goitrogens? Why is this a myth? And do you agree? I would love to. So a goitrogen is any substance that interferes with thyroid hormone synthesis. And this is typically by blocking the activity of an enzyme called thyroid peroxidase or TPO. People with Hashimoto's thyroiditis have their little uh, thyroid radar buzzing. I don't know what thyroid radars do, Um, but they're recognizing that because TPO antibodies are one of two antibodies that um, can result in Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Uh, So the other one being thyroglobulin antibodies. So people with autoimmune thyroid disorders uh, or those with low thyroid function are often advised to avoid consumption of cruciferous vegetables because of their goitrogenic properties And it's because in test tubes, uh, in old studies, those same isothiocyanates and thiocyanates that are maximized when we eat raw vegetables, they would also be maximized if you put that vegetable into a smoothie or juiced it because you're making the glucosinolates and the myrosinase enzyme mixed together to make these really important health benefiting uh, metabolites. Um, they have been shown to inhibit thyroid peroxidase activity in uh, in vitro, right? So in in a test tube. And there were some early studies where they looked at hypothyroidism caused by iron, iodine deficiency in animals, especially there was a, a, a study that got a lot of attention done in rabbits that were eating a lot of cruciferous vegetables. So these rabbits specifically had iodine deficiency driven hypothyroidism and were eating a ton of cabbage. And uh, it showed hypothyroidism was increased and they were forming goiters, right? So that also comes from the word goitrogen. But 
there's been a ton of studies done since that don't actually confirm this initial study. So even if those molecules have a mild effect uh, inhibiting TPO, that's very different than saying it's going to cause hypothyroidism or it's going to cause, cause a goiter um, because it has all these other benefits that can benefit thyroid function, right? So there's been a, some really important animal studies that have looked at different models of hypothyroidism. So hypothyroidism caused by iodine deficiency versus uh, chemicals treated to um, damage the thyroid. And they have basically shown, um, in, interestingly, when we sort of look at the, the science as a whole, they show that there's no impact. But there is some there is some, it's, I think it's helpful to kind of go through the studies because um, one of the things that we've talked about on the show plenty of times is the importance of looking at consensus and where the majority of scientific research uh, lies while acknowledging that a, the study that maybe doesn't agree is still interesting and maybe shows some importance of context or nuance. So there was a 2018 study where they looked at thyroid function in rats and the rats had either, again, uh, iodine deficiency induced hypothyroidism or they were treated with this chemical called sulfodimethyl Thoxine. It's a very long word that I don't intend to say again. And what they showed was that in the iodine deficiency um, hypothyroidism, that the rutabaga sprouts actually had a thyroid protective effect. So it actually helped reduce damage to the thyroid caused by iodine deficiency. And in the animals treated with the chemical that damages the thyroid, rutabaga sprouts enhanced hypothyroidism. But the same group did a follow-up study and showed that, again, like we've already talked about with sulforaphane, that the rutabaga sprouts reduced oxidative stress in the thyroid, again, uh, through my favorite antioxidant enzyme, hemoxygenase 1. Um, and that happened in both the iodine deficiency and the, the chemical-treated groups. Um, they also showed a reduction in inflammatory cytokines, like interleukin-6, which we already talked about, as well as tumor necrosis factor alpha, TNF-alpha. Um, and they showed increased anti-inflammatory cytokines, like interleukin-10, and interestingly, in this follow-up study, they showed that rutabaga sprouts had no hypothyroidism-enhancing effect in those chemical-treated rats. So the same group wasn't even able to reproduce their own results from, from the previous study. There was a separate 2018 study um, where rats were given freeze-dried broccoli sprouts that showed um, no changes in thyroid function in the control animals, and it protected the thyroid in, again, both the chemical-treated uh, hypothyroidism as well as the severe iodine deficiency-driven hypothyroidism um, and all of those same things that, that um, the other study shows, right? Reductions in things like interleukin-6. Um, they showed actually that there was uh, an improvement in thyroid enzyme activity uh, with the, the broccoli sprouts. So they actually showed that it was incredibly protective. So what about humans? I think that's the most natural next question. This has been studied. 
So there was a 2019 study where they gave people high doses of isothiocyanates from broccoli sprouts and showed that it was safe for the thyroid, even in the context of autoimmune thyroid disease. So what they did was they they had this uh, fancy extract of, of broccoli sprouts. It was treated with the myrosinase to con- to convert the glucosinolates into predominantly sulforaphane, which we already talked about. And uh, then people were blinded, so they didn't know what they were getting. It was mixed with like pineapple and lime juice. So people were just drinking green (laughs) pineapple juice or lime juice. Um, And they were uh, given a dose every single day for 84 days. So that's actually also a pretty long period of time. Um, Remember that in the studies that we talked about at the beginning of the show, that we were seeing impacts from cruciferous vegetable intake in intervention studies like this one in as little as two weeks. Um, So what they showed was in uh, in comparison to placebo, the broccoli sprout extract um, that was enriched with sulforaphane caused absolutely no change in thyroid lab markers. Um, They also showed that, very fascinatingly, the percentage of participants that were uh, p- positive for antibodies against thyroid peroxidase or thyroglobulin, the two markers of Hashimoto's thyroiditis, at baseline was no different 84 day- days later, statistically, s- significantly speaking. However, there was a statistical trend to a decrease Meaning, again, this is not statistically significant. They would need to do a larger sample size in order to tease out whether or not this was a real effect. However, there was a statistical trend towards there being fewer participants that met the diagnostic criteria for Hashimoto's thyroiditis at the end of the study where they had 84 days of isothiocyanates that are supposed to be goitrogens compared to the beginning. So again, you know, we would love to see much larger sample sizes to be able to confirm whether or not broccoli sprouts could actually uh, reverse early Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is what the study kind of implies. Um, but we can for sure say that it didn't increase uh, the production of antibodies against the thyroid or meaningfully change anything, uh, any kind of measure of thyroid function like free T4, like TSH. Um, so there was actually also a similar trend, not that's a statistical trend, which means the p-value is greater than 0.5. It usually means it's less than 0.1, or sorry, greater than 0.05, but less than 0.1 is usually that range where we call it a statistical trend. But there was a trend towards a decrease in the number of participants with subclinical hyperthyroidism. So that is a thyroid that is not doing awesome, but isn't uh, isn't under-functioning enough to meet the criteria for hypothyroidism. Um, so that, that gray area in between healthy thyroid and uh, what would be diagnostically termed hypothyroidism. Fascinating. So why do you think it this is a complete aside, but why do you think it shows differently in test tubes than in humans? I mean, I know that this is a consistent scientific thing. I'm just, as a like curious person, I heard you say because our body has, is it an enzyme or something process-wise that changes the results where a test tube doesn't or... I'm just wondering, like, where did this myth and rumor come from? Like, why? You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it came from um, both the observation that isothiocyanates, these glucosinolate metabolites, can inhibit the activity of one enzyme in the thyroid. The thyroid is really complex, right? It's a it's a really complex chemical reaction to make thyroid hormones, and the regulation is not just one enzyme, right? The regulation is pituitary hormones and um, uh, various selenoenzymes and um, both really high levels of iodine and really low levels of iodine can suppress suppress thyroid. So um, there's not very many people out there with iodine deficiency-induced hypothyroidism. And the initial studies that, that led to potentially making an argument for avoiding cruciferous vegetables if you had autoimmune thyroid disease um, were done in the context of iodine deficiency. So also we're not, that's not functionally what's happening in most people. Most people's Hashimoto's thyroiditis is not driven by low iodine because iodine enriched salt um, makes it very unusual for anybody to be deficient in iodine these days. So, um, so I think, you know, this is why it's important to fund replication studies. I could go on a soapbox for that for about seven hours. Um, but it's also why it's important to not just look at one study or two studies, to not just look at what happens in a test tube or what happens in animals, but look at the full body of scientific research, look at what's been done in animals in terms of understanding the mechanisms, right? So that's where these rat studies are really, really helpful. They show that there's a anti-inflammatory effect um, and that it's that anti-inflammatory effect is protective for, for the thyroid in both of the ways in these animal models that they cause hypothyroidism, at least in two out of the three studies. And the other study couldn't be replicated even by the same research group. Um, and, um, and it also tells us why it's important to look at the majority of studies, right? So this is why scientific consensus is such an important concept because small changes in methodology, small changes in um, variables can change the outcome. And because the human body is so complex, that's why we want to examine the same question in multiple different ways to be able to really understand it. We can't just say, I have this one question, do cruciferous vegetables uh, suppress thyroid function in humans and do one study and be able to say definitively yes or no. That's why we want multiple studies performed by different research groups in different populations with different variables to be able to make a, a statement about you know the answer to that question with more confidence. One study is never a definitive study. We always look at the body of scientific literature as a whole, and that's why I put so much stock into systematic reviews and meta-analyses because that's exactly what those studies do. They take the body of scientific literature, every single study that is trying to answer a question, and pools all of that information together to really tease out the results and kind of average out where variables might impact the the actual results. So um, so I, I can see where the, the origin for this myth is in the scientific studies. I think the really, really important information to know is that studies from the last three years have illuminated um, that, that problem and 
um, have expanded human knowledge in a way that makes us know now that people with autoimmune thyroid disease, uh, you know, especially in the context of not having iodine deficiency, have no reason to avoid cruciferous vegetables. Indeed. And I don't use um, salt that has been added with iodine any like right like that was one of the things that I changed over in my um, focus on nutrient density was to find like more natural salts um, but iodine is also in seafood where else can one would one find so there is some iodine in unrefined sea salts. Oh, so if you're if you're using Himalayan pink salt or French sel gris or Celtic um, sea salt, those all do have some iodine. So they have about seventy five percent of the sodium of regular salts and a similar amount, you know, fifty ish percent of the iodine. So they still do have iodine, and actually. Um, given how much iodine there is in iodized table salt, um, there are some some researchers. I'm not. I haven't dug deep into this this data, so I I can't make a statement on whether or not I agree. But there are some researchers researchers who think that one of the reasons why we're seeing an increase in hypothyroidism is because of iodine excess, because there's so much iodine exposure from diets that are sort of rich in salty snacks and fast food and that type of thing. So um, there is iodine in unrefined sea salts. It's, of course, extremely high in sea vegetables. So a, you know, sea veg salt, um, I really like the Maine Coast brand. They have a bunch of different options. Um, but then it's like a finishing salt that has little tiny flakes of, of seaweeds. It's, it's not a ton, but you're getting actually really good, not just iodine, but trace minerals. Um, so you're getting, depending on the seaweed that's used, something like 80 different trace minerals from that little bit of, of sea vegetable that's on your plate that just has a really umami flavor, you know, when it's, when it's used that way. Um, I like to add sheets of kombu kelp to my broth when I'm cooking broth and that adds some iodine to my broth as well as again, all of those different minerals. So that's another great little trick and seafood is a really good source as well. So it's, it's not actually, if you're eating unrefined salts, um, and you're eating a whole food diet that includes seafood, chances are really good that you're not iodine deficient. Yeah. I love that. I use sea seasonings, but the, um, sea salt with sea veg in it is, I honestly, even if you told me that it wasn't giving me much nutritional value, I would still, I love it on soups and rice, especially and eggs. Um, there's just, like you said, such a fantastic umami flavor and, um, it's really affordable, super, you can find it like your local store. You can also get it on Amazon or wherever it's. Uh, highly recommended, but that's the complete tangent. Um, so I guess the answer to Janet's question is, uh, no, you don't need to stop eating cruciferous vegetables. <laughs> but don't bother juicing them. You're throwing out half the good stuff when you do that. Thank you. Yes, you reiterated my my original, the only moment of value that I've added here to the show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think... Um, you know, just in general, when we talk about juicing, 
we're not, we're not here to criticize. If, if you do something that you love, there are far worse things that you can do with your life than juicing. It's just like, why, you know, why get rid of the fiber and, and all that stuff. And I think it comes from this idea of vegetables being difficult to digest, which we have covered on all those shows that I re-mentioned at the top of the podcast and is just, to me, I would, I would much rather get the, the full nutritional benefits of the food as it was like put here on the earth to be made that way. You know what? Like I just, I, I, I try not to have that like, well, just because it's old doesn't mean it's good mindset, but, um, foods are synergistic for a reason. Like they, they complement and they come in multiple forms because, um, oftentimes, for example, the fiber in a vegetable is doing other things of benefit. And it's not just for gut microbiome health. It's it's also sometimes has to do with how your body is going to absorb those nutrients or what it might be doing to blood sugar that you don't intend because it's a vegetable and different kinds of things like that, that juicing can have an unintended consequence. Um, but I myself do love a smoothie. I will confess. I'll raise my hand. I'm not going to feel badly about it. I can get like 13 varieties of fruits and vegetables, and like five servings in, you know, just my breakfast and enjoy it. And so I'm all for putting some kale, um, in my smoothies. There aren't very many cruciferous vegetables that I like, but the other thing that I really like in my smoothies, Sarah, you're going to, you're going to. I know you're just going to facepalm, is riced cauliflower because you can get it frozen and it's already like prepared and it works really well to create like a, a creamy smoothie. And Sarah's like, just eat the food, Stacy. <laughs> no, actually, I think that's a really cool solution. Um, you know, I was, I thought it would be a, a fun thing to do to kind of wrap up this episode with some of the ways that we, and creative ways that we use cruciferous vegetables. Uh, and as a non-smoothie person, um, I can say that uh, I'm not going to be making a cauliflower smoothie anytime soon, but cauliflower is a really great place to start because it's so versatile. You can get collie rice now in bags, at most different grocery stores and uh, broccoli rice as well is is out mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. Uh, as something that you can just buy. Broccoli slaw, I think, is an amazing kind of like noodle substitute. It's it's so good. I have a pad thai recipe on my website, uh, a couple of different ones that use broccoli slaw as a pad thai noodle substitute. Um, that's delicious. Um, and I also I I will use collie rice as a soup thickener. So that's kind of it's just soup's just a hot smoothie with no fruit. Um, 100%. Two, my two favorite food groups, smoothies yes. and soups. <laughs> so, um, so I love using cauliflower as, as a, uh, basically a substitute for sort of getting that, that creamy flavor. I make broccoli basically by just, um, you know, simmering cauliflower or collie rice in broth until it's a little bit overcooked and then uh, blending it and adding salt until it tastes amazing. So I, I, as long as it's made with a really rich broth, it is absolutely delicious. Um, and then I, I love, um, I just, I, I make a ton of different side dishes with cruciferous vegetables. Like we already talked about roasted Brussels sprouts. I, uh, Brussels sprouts are one of those foods. Actually, I would say Brussels sprouts 
kale and broccoli are on my shopping list every single week. I never know exactly what I'm going to make with them, but uh, they every time I get groceries, they are on that list. And then other ones like cauliflower, romanesco, or bok choy are sort of they kind of they get a they get a they get featured regularly, but I kind of cycle through them. Um, and then also things like arugula for for salad or watercress if I can find it. Um, watercress is, seems to be very seasonal. Um, but I I steam broccoli, I roast broccoli, I stir fry broccoli. Broccoli, I, when I get, I should say broccoli is on my list every single week and three or four of the bunches of florets is what I get every single week. That's what my family goes through. Um, at least two bunches of kale. And I always try to get two different varieties. Kale salad is one of my, my go-tos. My husband loves it so much. It's like his, one of his favorite foods. So I'm always really popular when I make kale salad. Um, but there's, there's just so many just delicious ways. I make a, a chicken stir fry with bok choy often. It's one of my uh, stir fry. I stir fry with cruciferous vegetables a lot. I just realized that and just like straight up roast them are probably my two, my two go-tos. Um, but we eat, again, as I think I said at the top of the show, we eat a cruciferous vegetable pretty much every night for dinner. I don't think I'm super intentional with like, oh, here's our starchy vegetable and here's our cruciferous vegetable. I I think it's, I do tend to be intentional with a starchy vegetable and one or two other vegetables, but I think it just kind of happens to be that most of the time, one of the other vegetables on our plate or in the, you know, whatever the mix is, the soup or the stew or the stir fry or the shepherd's pie or whatever it is almost all the time there's a cruciferous vegetable in there somewhere I think from a like realistic perspective right because a lot of people have desire to have these like fancy home-cooked meals every night but life is just not maybe does not allow you to do that like I get it I'm over here living that life um (laughs) one of the things that is really helpful for us is we get like Normandy vegetables that are like frozen um and we steam them that's like my go-to whenever I'm like stuck for dinner and trying to figure things out and I just make like a basic protein and then those Normandy vegetables have both broccoli and cauliflower in them um they also have I think green beans and carrots for what it's worth um and like I said, I use cauli, frozen cauli rice, and um, there's so many, like, cauli things that are out there in the world, like cauli gnocchi and all of those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally also really love horseradish. I will make myself, like, a horseradish, like, side, like a dip, a dipping sauce a lot. And so if you're... Um, kids have a hard time with vegetables um that's like the sauce that people dip shrimp in so (laughs) make yourself like a you know like a healthier version of homemade um what do they call that stuff I don't eat ketchup so I cocktail sauce cocktail sauce yes you know you can it's just ketchup and horseradish and maybe some lemon juice and and serve that and then you're serving it with shrimp which is you know you literally can buy bagged in the um you know, from a freezer and just like microwave it for a few minutes. Um, there's a lot of, don't feel like you have to 
make a homemade soup or stir fry every night to be able to get these sort of vegetables in. I will say we do try to have a stir fry and a big pot of soup each week on our meal plan just because it's a great way to use up vegetables and also to get a lot of vegetables and a variety of them into one dish. And then there's leftovers that people can have throughout the week or for lunches and things. So make the most of when you are in the kitchen working on these things. Um, I will say my kids favorite is um, like sauteed cabbage or cabbage that is cooked underneath chicken juice. So we have this recipe on the blog called bacon chicken, which then turned into like honey mustard chicken. And I think there might even be a third version of this because it's like so popular. People love it. But essentially you just put like a a sheet pan, you lay the cabbage out on the sheet pan with like you don't even need any seasoning. You can put some salt and pepper and stuff if you want, but the seasoning comes from the meat that you cook on top on like a raised rack. And so let's say you just put some chicken thighs on there and you flavored the chicken thighs and you cooked it, the drippings from the chicken will actually cook the cabbage and flavor it. And like my children literally fight over who will get, like we can't put enough cabbage on the sheet pan to feed our family. Like that's how much people love that recipe. And it's so simple and so easy to use. So don't get overwhelmed by thinking like some of these studies that we were talking about, like up to eight servings of these vegetables a day. And you're like, I don't have time to cook these foods, to eat these foods, you know, lean into the things that are easy buttons. And then over time, maybe you'll develop some favorite recipes or some habits that, you know, oh, if I make one big pot of soup a week, then I can have this dish a couple times a week and it has multiple things in it. Like Sarah said, if you use um, especially cauliflower, but really any roasted root vegetables and you puree that into a soup, it creates a creaminess. So you'll find a lot of like dairy-free soup recipes on the internet that will use like pureed vegetables as the thing that makes a soup creamy instead of needing to add a bunch of dairy. Um, so that's another way to to get that in. And then you just have one thing that gets, gets the job done all week long. So, um, and smoothies, I've already mentioned, I've become a smoothie addict in lieu of coffee. One of the things that you said made me realize that it's probably worth talking uh, at least a little bit about bitter super tasters as we wrap up this conversation and acknowledging that there are people who have it's there's a there's a gene it's kind of the same thing as like how some people think cilantro tastes like soap and other people think cilantro tastes like da bomb and I'm in that latter group um but it's a it's a gene that's altering the the flavor sensation um the gene in question is HTAS2R38 um that's that's the taste receptor gene and um depending on which variant you have uh, most of us can taste that there's a bitter flavor to cruciferous vegetables, but some people are super, super sensitive to that bitter flavor. And studies have actually shown that uh, bitter super tasters uh, tend to hate vegetables and tend to gravitate towards sweet treats. So there's been a bunch of different studies looking at how to um, how to overcome that, basically. And so there's a couple of different strategies if you do realize that you fall under this bitter super taster uh, uh, gene 
category. So one is to blanch uh, cruciferous vegetables before you cook them some other way. So that basically means throw them into a pot of boiling water for like a minute, throw them into uh, an ice uh, bath, right, ice water to cool them down, and then roast them or add them to soups or stews. That will remove some of the bitter compounds and make them taste better for you. Um, the other, another strategy is to balance that bitter flavor with something astringent or acidic. So, uh, Stacy, you mentioned, um, you know, sort of a vinaigrette, uh, lemon juice would work. Um, basically adding some, something like that to, to the flavor. Um, I love to toss roasted Brussels sprouts with just maybe like a tablespoon of balsamic vinegar for an entire sheet pan and a tablespoon of maple syrup. That is a really wonderful way for people who think Brussels sprouts are are way too bitter to like really uh, not just hide the bitterness, but also enhance the other flavors in that. Um, And then studies have also shown that pairing uh, a, a, a vegetable that you dislike, I mean, it doesn't need to be because you're a bitter super taster, but maybe you think, Broccoli and cauliflower are fine, but there's no way you're ever going to eat kale. Um, pairing that with another food that you do like or a dressing that you like or a dip that you like um, has been shown in a variety of different studies to improve your um, taste for that vegetable. So you will actually can develop a preference for it just by pairing it with something that you think is really delicious. So if you always have your favorite something else um, with the cruciferous vegetable that you don't like, soon you start to associate that cruciferous vegetable with deliciousness, and then you start to like the cruciferous vegetable itself. Um, so it's worth, even if you don't like one or more of this family, of finding ways to make it so that you do like it. That's a good point, too, because we talked years and years ago around salary amylase and how little children don't have essentially something in their saliva that helps um, break down and change the the flavor of bitter foods and especially something like broccoli is very hard for small children not just because of that but also because if it's raw or something they don't have the jaw muscles either so working with the flavors like Sarah you just outlined can really um help them to develop until they develop over time more acclimation to it that's a legit thing it's not just children being difficult like there's there's real stuff going on that can change that but I do think that um walking away entirely from a a huge group of vegetables can cause more harm than good if we can work around it and find accommodations another thing um, that worked really well for my kids was we made, um, it was like a broccoli raisin salad, right. With like bacon and raisins in it. So any way that you can add sweetness, it doesn't have to be like maple syrup to roasting, but it can balance out those flavors and make them a bit more palatable. So, all right. Well, I think we've covered literally everything we possibly could on this topic. Uh, if you have follow-up questions, please be in touch with us via our websites, uh, paleomom.com and realeverything.com. I also want to remind you that we'll be popping over to Patreon and every single week we offer an additional show commercial free uh, over there on Patreon and you can sign up for the year so you don't have to think about it and 
get our second podcast a week through that platform delivered to your inbox or um, you can just sign up per month, I think, five bucks a month, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we thank you so much for being here and to Janet for asking her awesome question. We hope that you go forth, via, be it via soup or stir fry or uh, smoothies or just or taking just a some raw steamed bite. broccoli on the side. Just yep. taking a raw bite. Um, we hope that we have inspired you to just go out and... Find some cruciferous vegetables. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. We love providing the Whole View podcast for you as a free resource. You can support the show by using the links and codes we share in our podcast. And we love to read your reviews and chats wherever you listen. And don't forget to share our podcast with your friends and family. Speaking of chat, did you know that you can get exclusive behind-the-scenes content on Patreon? When you support us with your Patreon membership, you get access to live Q&As and weekly bonus audio, but they're not for kids' ears because our bonus content is explicit. You can also stay in touch with us via our social media channels. I'm at Real Everything Blog. And I'm at The Paleo Mom. And we've got more great resources on our websites and in our newsletters. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.